You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thank you for showing up and tuning in. All right, let's just jump in. I've got two main topics to talk about today, and I wanted to talk about them before I left for Africa because uh, it's just like any other time I do a podcast, I really um, just felt like I wanted to talk about something. So this uh, particular podcast will be first about something I've been calling the Cult of Noah. Um, I don't know if that's really a great name for it or not, but that's what I've been calling it. And it's really a kind of like a worldview change in one sense, not in the true sense because my worldview stayed exactly the same, but the way that I uh, have been dealing with the data of ancient mythologies has really changed and it's given me a really great way, uh, perspective on a lot of um, ancient mythologies and belief systems and so on. And it even explains, I think, things like ancient pagan sacrifice. Have you ever wondered, you know, why sacrifice was you know, the, the pagans did it and stuff like that and whatnot. I think this may explain that. So I think it's got a lot of cool implications if it's true. I mean, I always take this stuff with a grain of salt, uh, because as many of you should know by now, I'm really shooting from the hip, as I say, from a lot with this podcast. I'm just sort of thinking it's kind of an audio blog sort of situation. Um, anyway, so I've been doing a lot of research for the ancient aliens debunked project, as you know, oh, by the way, uh, A&E has recently, just yesterday, put out a, a copyright claim for the trailer, the Ancient Aliens Debunk trailer. So they said they'd take it down, but they haven't taken it down just yet. I think that they are awaiting um, my uh, disputing the claim, of which I did dispute the claim. And we'll see how that goes. I'm actually going to be in Africa when all that stuff comes in, so I don't know what's going to go on with that. But I think that the worst part of it is that... that I have a copyright strike against my account now, my main primary YouTube account, which means that I can't upload um, full-length videos to the YouTube account anymore, or at least unless this dispute uh, gets worked out, which I'm trying not to let bring me down because I think it can uh, use it for good because it will encourage me to make these in uh, smaller bite-sized segments, not just straight 15-minute cuts, but rather um, topical cuts that I can then title appropriately and they can have a lot more traction, a lot more views in different forums and just overall it'll get so many more views if I do it that way. Um, of course I'll find a way to upload it in a full length form somewhere or another too. So not too, not too bad. Anyway, um, so I've been doing a lot of research on this and one of the things that has required some research and study is the area of mythologies of the ancient world. And usually, even even in just like uh, one I was researching recently, Viracocha, I wasn't really researching Viracocha to, um, I was researching it just to know what the early Andean cultures and Incan cultures believed, so, I, so it helped me explain some of their ritual sites like uh, Tiwanaku and different things like that. But as I was reading this, it just... It, it was just so much, it just fit in with all the other stuff that I'd been reading. I've been reading so much mythology stuff lately, and there's this theme just is everywhere. And basically, to put it quickly in a nutshell, it's that like Noah and his three sons, Ham, Shem, Japheth, got off the boat with their wives, 
you know, so eight people in all got off the boat and really did populate the world. Um, I mean, they really, it, you know, if the Bible is true, then that's what you should expect. Some, some kind of Genesis from Turkey in a, a second Genesis in a sense, you know, that these eight people in Turkey literally populated the rest of the world. And if that's true, then you should expect a pretty detailed knowledge of biblical theology because uh, Noah, uh, his grandfather being Enoch, Noah uh, w- would have been old enough, if you do the math, to interview Adam. That's something somebody told me recently. I haven't done the math on that, but that's what they said. And I, I know that I know that it's close one way or another. Like, um, but anyway, so he was Noah was pretty pretty knowledgeable. There is, in my personal belief, I can't prove it or not. I think that he probably contained on the ark some scriptures, probably the some kind of uh, whatever part of the book of Enoch is good, because we do know that Enoch prophesied, and even if it was just a oral prophecy. Uh, according to Jude and P- Peter, or at least Jude, uh, Enoch prophesied something. And so we know that that prophecy must have been carried in some way uh, on Noah's boat, whether it was in paper, oral tradition, or whatever. We know Noah and his sons contained a lot of knowledge of God, the true God. Now, we you could do the ma- migration patterns and all the different things that you want to do is how civilization spread out and different things. But this explains not just the reason why cultures all over the place have knowledge of the flood story or whatever. And let me speak to that real quick. It's not just that they have knowledge of a flood. It's the knowledge of a the detailed specifics of, of you know, we're, we're not just talking about, yes, there was a flood. It's like there was a flood, there was animals, there was a boat, there was eight people, there was maybe like a raven instead of a dove that was put out at the end of it to, you know, there was... A sacrifice at the end, a very consistent thing is that they mention Noah's sacrifice that he makes after they get off the boat and whatnot. And certain elements are in others and others or, or whatnot, but they're all the same. In fact, a lot of them, have, one of the primary things that is kept in, in all of them is that the reason why the flood was because God uh, was unhappy with certain types of inhabitants of the world. And so it was a judgment to clear the world of them. It's really interesting when we get into Viracocha here in a minute. But they have a specific flood in mind, not just a general flood. You know, this is hard for a skeptic to deal with. And one of the reasons that I don't think uh, skeptics, uh, I think it's one of their downfalls is how to deal with mythology. Because they're left with saying, well, everybody uh, was suffering from mass delusion or something like that. One of the common things that people will say is that there was a a flood, a local flood in in the Middle East, you know, the Mediterranean flooded. And that is the the source for the flood myths and that works for you know technically i don't think it actually does but it works for those myths around the mediterranean but it doesn't do much for you in the americas or china or on and on and on the places where that flood would not have been known about the you know and again it doesn't uh, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a global flood i mean i i, I assume that it was um, but it, but we're dealing with anthropology. We're dealing with the, with that. I think what the flood myth stories and the consistent flood myth stories all over the world do show is that there's a common origin of people. That is that they come from these eight people in Turkey or whatever that had a consistent knowledge of God. And I want to show later on, uh, the specifics of this 
and how that how that was twisted i think it's fascinating to see how they twisted the the noah story to make it a cultic thing and then to know who god was and then to knowingly eyes wide open go and worship other gods for various reasons um how the sumerians did this is fascinating to me but um it's just amazing and so and some of them uh idolized noah himself as uh as a as a god i think that's probably what's happening in the americas uh, probably even what's happening with the Dogon legends or Dagon, you know, the fish from the sea, the, these ideas of men coming from the sea. Um, I think I, I ran across this from somewhere and I think it was Heiser, but I can't find it now. Uh, it was comparing the Dogon legends to Upnapishtim, which Upnapishtim is the uh, Sumerian equivalent of Noah and, and then essentially also Noah. So essentially they're saying this, this God from the sea. And if you look at your coach, that's what he is. He's this guy that comes out of the sea with a staff and, you know, after the flood or whatnot. And that's sort of who they worship as the creator God. That leads me to the next section about how the creation of man and the story of the flood are you, well, I don't know what usually, but, uh, in a lot of these, uh, stories of the flood, they are just one in the same story. Um, you may remember a recent podcast I did on the Sumerian mythologies in reference to the Anunnaki, and I was talking about how they kind of mix up the the creation of man story with the flood story. Like if you asked a Sumerian mythologist, tell me about the creation of man, he'd say, well, you know, first there was this uh, hybrid, these hybrids that were created between God and uh, and uh, they they really went around the earth and God got mad at them. And so he sent a flood. And then, um, you know, you're saying, are we talking about the creation of man? Or are we talking about the flood? We would interpret most of the ancient world stories about the creation of man as starting from Genesis six. And you can't really blame them. If you're asking them, what well, what's the origin of man? They, they essentially go back to Noah and his family. Well, that's where man came from. You want to know about man? Well, we all come from this dude. There was a flood and, you know, the, and the, but, but it's interesting that they also incorporate some very specific elements of the creation story, too, which I think is indicative of their previous knowledge of God. For instance, the bre- breath of life into, you know, it's a consistent theme of God breathed into the stones or to the to the clay or to the so-and-so and so, so forth. Um, giants. Let me read uh, really quickly uh, uh, the story of Viracocha because I think it has some of these elements. And this is in uh, early um, the early Americas. Uh, Viracocha rose from Lake Titicaca, or sometimes the cave of Pacritambo, uh, during the time of darkness to bring forth light. He made the sun, moon, and stars. Okay, so this is a creator, God, uh, he, but he rose from Lake Titicaca. He made mankind breathing into stones. Okay, so you have some breathing into inanimate objects to create man. But his first creation were brainless giants that displeased him, so he destroyed it with a flood and made a new, better one from smaller stones. Okay, so so he breathed into these giant stones, which created giants, and he didn't like the giants, so he sent a flood and then he breathed into some smaller stones and created man. So, and then, you know, the smaller stones and Viracocha, you know, does all this other stuff. Different, uh, versions have, uh, put, put his, um, his kids and stuff at a very, uh, let's see here. 
He talks about his wife, uh, which they call Mama Akalo, which means Mother Fertility. These two founded Inca civilization carrying a golden staff called the Tapak Yari. In another legend, he fathered the first eight civilized human beings. In some stories, his wife is called Mama Kocha. Now, that's interesting. Obviously, eight people. This is consistent stuff that you see all over the place. But if, if Viracocha fathered eight, eight people and he comes out of the sea, it's clear the Viracocha is like a white guy with beard and a staff. And, you know, what I'm saying is, is that he's probably Noah. I mean, if, he, if he's the one, the father of the eight or, you know, he's father, you know, they're getting it kind of messed up. You can see this in all the mythologies. There's elements that are like, OK, well, that's pretty that's pretty weird. But it's also mixed up and jumbled up and incorporated here into, you know, he went he. He fathered Incan civilization, which is a really important part of Incan civilization that uh, they, and I don't want to go into all that right now, but they, it's very Inca-centered, but it's still based here, you can see, off of what uh, I would say would be actual, consistent mythology throughout the world. Uh, now, the same is true with, as I mentioned, the Sumerian concepts, um, even the Greek uh, the ancient Greek legends. Let me read about some flood stuff from the Greek legends. I don't know where the best uh, place to get this. Okay, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name, so you mythologists are going to laugh at me. Uh, Deucalion, maybe? Um, let's see here. So, Prometheus. Now, I don't know which which one to read about Prometheus. Let me read it from this one. Prometheus had a son, du, uh, Deucalion. And Prometheus, of course, is the guy who wanted to bring uh, knowledge to men, uh, but God got mad at him, and he was, you know, this this martyr because he just wanted men to to be smart, and so he got uh, bound for a while. Uh, it's clearly a reference to Lucifer in the Garden of Eden, and that's why a lot of people in, that are Luciferians venerate Prometheus. It's very Gnostic in origin. So he's not really a guy that we need to be looking up to and saying he's the greatest guy in the world or whatever. Um, where to start? Okay, let's see. A titan Prometheus advised his son, Deucalion, to build a chest. All their men perished except for a few who escaped to high mountains. Um, do, 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 do. His wife, Piriana, after floating in the chest for nine days and nights. You'll often see this in the Flood Myths, too. A, a specific number of days and nights. It's the same thing when they'll say a specific dimensions of the Ark, you know? Like, even though the, the dimensions will vary and the days will vary, a part of the story is always how many days was it and what are the dimensions of the Ark. I say always. It's not always there, but it's it's often there. Uh, it landed on a particular mountain, in this case Parnassus. Again, this is sort of a consistent thing, always a, cons a, a particular mountain. Um, different mountain in another version. Another account has him landing on a peak. Problem: There's another another mountain that's probably when the rains came. He sacrificed to Zeus. This is an interesting thing um, that the sacrifice is almost always in these things. I mean, we know from the biblical account that Noah sacrificed afterwards, and the sacrifice is recorded in almost all of these legends. That after the flood, after it all works out, after it lands, he sacrifices here to Zeus. Then at the bidding of Zeus, he threw stones behind him and they became men. The stones uh, that his wife threw became women. So here again we have, in this case, stones and the creation of men being related to Noah's uh, getting off the ark. So the creation of men and Noah and the ark are like 
one of the same in the Greek. It's one of the same in the Sumerian. One of the same in the 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 basic uh, American uh, versions. And those three really constitute um, the three sort of primary colors of mythology. But there's lots of other different ones too that do similar things. Uh, but I'll just use that as a springboard. Those two, so we can kind of be on the same page here. Uh, now. I talked a little bit about how they twisted and stuff like that. With the Sumerians, they it's really interesting how the Sumerians really make that Romans passage, although they knew God, they you know worshipped him not as God. That That's something that I think they really demonstrate. Because in the Sumerian legends, they have a God that's like the creator God that is good and perfect and whatnot. But in their mythology, and he created all other gods, he created everything, they all really came from him. That's just it. But in the Sumerian legends, they kind of like put him to sleep and made him sort of, and by the time the Assyrian stuff, you know, uh, came out, he was completely gone. And Inki, excuse me, I might begin this wrong, I believe it's Inki, um, Inki was replaced. Inki in the mythology, uh, when when the on the the creator god is, they put him to sleep. I can't remember how he went to sleep or whatever, but uh, then he takes over and kills him. I think in his sleep or something like that. Maybe he doesn't kill him, but in any case, he imprisons him or something. I don't know what he does to him. Anyway, he renders him useless, and he basically, for all intents and purposes, takes over as god. Now, Inki is the uh, god of wisdom. Okay, does it ring any bells? Uh, he's also the god of the air, which is which is different than the god of the heavens or the god of the underworld. He is the god of the air, which is a really interesting little thing. So in the Sumerians, they know God's there. They don't just say, oh, well, you know, Satan's god. They they make Satan, you know, it's like Satan's choice of mythology. If he was like, okay, uh, in this version, how about I defeat God and everybody worships me? You know, it's like... It's like a joke uh, from Satan. You know, it's it's exactly what Satan would would choose if he was getting to sort of pervert the true knowledge of it. And you know, it's interesting too about all this stuff is that it's not as if a lot of these cultures, like the Incans or whatever, were just straight up duped in, or the um, you know into worshiping uh, false gods. And it's like, well, it's all they knew, you know. But in a way, it's it's very interesting how they began to worship. Let's take the Sumerians, for example. These other lesser deities for power and different things and fertility and blah, 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 that they knew good and well were demigods. They knew good and well were were like no better than demons. And yet they worshipped them for the stuff that they wanted. And they knew, the interesting thing about the Sumerians, they knew demons were evil. Um, they knew it was wrong to a certain degree, but there was a massive cult uh, following of a lot of that stuff. So they, though they knew God, they worshiped him not as God, I think is true in a lot of these cultures. In the, in the Americas, it's almost, it's almost ridiculous how much, yes, they, they, they have a mythology about God, but they are very animistic. They are worshiping spirits. Uh, they're conjuring spirits with uh, all kinds of means, including and probably one of the most uh, uh, hallucinogenic drug-centered cultures 
Um, I've been looking into a lot of the Nazca culture, as you can imagine, with this research and the Nazca lines and all that stuff. But they're really similar to a lot of, um, you know, early cultures in that area. And they were so like just like the the um, Aztecs or the Mayans, very into human sacrifice because of their animism. Like they would take all these drugs, they would encounter these spirits and they would. What the what the Nazca is called trophy heads. They would cut off everybody's heads, bury them uh, in hopes for rain. I mean, they were like they worshipped these what they you know thought would bring rain spirits, or told them that they would bring rain in these visions and stuff if they just would kill a whole bunch of people. So you know, and, and I always think that I think we think well, that's just what they you know that's just what they believed. But I wonder if a lot of people didn't believe it and a lot of people thought that that was bad because we wouldn't have their records could you imagine uh we're not going to have like the people that 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 were protesting that and the people that were not going along with that who said you know it's not good to worship these things they're evil i know in, in the same way if any of you have ever experienced anything uh demonic in your life you know really really quickly uh that's not good i don't know what's going on but that is evil and, and they they knew that stuff too and there were probably a lot of people who were like i don't I don't think this is right. We shouldn't be doing this. Da, 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 da. But we wouldn't have their records uh, because, you know, they weren't uh, obviously going to make it very far in a culture like that. So that brings me to the subject of sacrifice of all kinds. Um, if you're like me, I kind of always thought it was a little weird, uh, made me a little uncomfortable, I guess, that there's been pagan sacrifice. It's like, well, why did God have to require sacrifice too? You know, why couldn't he? Have, why did he have to do that? Just like the pagans. I think I was tempted to think that, you know, because there's sacrifice in the Old Testament. And I was like, well, why did he have to just do that sort of pagan idea? Thinking that uh, pagan sacrifice is was the root. You know, it's where it started. But um, I don't think it did. I think that sacrifice was never intended to be human sacrifice, first of all. Um, but it started in Genesis with Adam and Eve. And with the the first sin, you know, they try to cover themselves with leaves. And God brings back, uh, you know, animal skins. It's kind of not a very explicit uh, thing, but it is very uh, implied. The idea of sacrifices in the Old Testament are very important um, and they show the grievousness of sin. And I think it's really important to realize, I've, I've talked about this several times, but I'll mention it briefly for uh, context sake. If you sinned in the Old Testament and you had to go buy a lamb, I mean, it's a pretty expensive endeavor anyway, but this is a sin that you had to admit that you were a sinner because you could sin in these kinds of ways and not admit it. But if you if you really felt convicted about it and you really wanted to do something about it, you would go and purchase a, a lamb. The lamb had to be perfect. It had to have no blemishes on it. A lamb that did not deserve to die. Not a lamb that was sickly. And, you know, you could probably make a case of, like, well, it deserved to die. This lamb didn't deserve to die. Uh, and you took that. You bought that lamb. You took it to the priest. They made you put your hand on the lamb as they killed this innocent, innocent, completely innocent lamb for your sin. The grievousness, the, the penalty for your sin, that, that something innocent died for your sin, uh, accomplishes a lot of tasks in conviction of sin. It accomplishes the understanding of the seriousness of sin. And the, sin, the, the sacrifices were a way of 
grace in the Old Testament. You know, nobody was saved by the law in the Old Testament. Nobody could keep the law back then any more than they could keep it now. But they needed um, they needed sacrifice. They needed mercy, and and that was a way, obviously, pointing forward to Christ and His uh, sacrifice. But the the thing, though, um, that I want to try to say is that sacrifice was for sin and had other uses as well. But God had the perfect um, the perfect uh sacrifices even as far as Cain and Abel and stuff like that. So we know that the origins, if it was Adam, then Cain and Abel, there wasn't any time for pagan sacrifices to develop at that point. So you fast forward to Noah and his sons, and as I mentioned before, the fact that sacrifices is noted in the Greek mythologies and the sacrifices are noted in the Sumerian uh uh, uh mythologies and on and on and on. They all know it's a part of the story just as much as you know, the other elements, the dove or the raven being let out at the end or whatnot. It's just a part of how you tell the story in the oral tradition. And then there was a sacrifice. And I think that as culture started to develop and sort of go out from that area, there was this idea that God uh, is like sacrifice. And you can see how twisted everybody else got it. Just like the Sumerians put Satan at the top and put God asleep and did a whole bunch of other things and started worshiping other gods. But it's they still had the, lim- the, the idea that, you know, sacrifice was what God wanted. And uh, Satan's perversion of that is, like anything Satan does, I don't think that Satan's like, I need sacrifice blood to make me strong or anything like that. I don't think that anything Satan does is like that. The only criteria he has for anything whether it's an upside down cross or blah 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 it's not mystic properties at all it's just blasphemous it's just a perversion that that's what makes him tick is perversion and so a human sacrifice is perversion and part of that is worship uh, that they receive we know from paul that demons seek and accept worship and so there is that's the main uh thing that they're after but nevertheless, I do think that that's where the origin of pagan sacrifice comes from is uh, is a perversion of a remembering of Noah and ultimately a remembering of, of Adam and so on. But specifically, I think um, Noah in the ancient world. A side note to that is that through gene research and things like that, because of the uh, Y chromosome and stuff, they can do some pretty interesting things with halotypes and whatnot. And I haven't confirmed this for myself, but uh, somebody told me that they are, uh, they're showing that there is a um, origin around Turkey, um, that all these different people and everything don't come from one area in, uh, in uh, Africa, Eastern, Kenya, Eastern Africa, where I'll be going, but rather Turkey. Uh, so I'll, I'll be interested to see what develops with that. But um, as I said, I haven't really confirmed that. But the whole point is that the mythologies of the world the, the, that, let's say it in a different way, the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, um, it, it, if it's true, it explains everything. It explains all mythologies. It explains everything if it's true. If Noah and his family got off the ark in Turkey, then I don't have any problem with any mythology or anything else at all. Uh, so I don't know how much of a big deal to make about that in the uh, in the movie. I don't think I'm going to make any deal about it. I, don't, I may. I, if, if I do, it'll be briefly. I haven't really decided exactly how to present 
the mythology section, which I'll probably do towards the end because it is a bit uh, subjective. But I do think that um, one can demonstrate it with a reasonable amount of um, uh, logic that the biblical worldview, that, that the Bible quite simply is the best, well, how to say it? I would say that the Bible has been right all along. Um, and I think this this idea would be extremely profound to a believer in the ancient astronaut theories who long ago abandoned that worldview. Okay, the next subject I wanted to talk about is repentance. And um, I wanted to talk about this already, a particular type of repentance. I've talked before about what I've called believer's repentance, the repentance for a person who's born again, but yet uh, needs to repent for different uh, things in their life and how that functions. More, This is more of an application kind of idea of how it, how it happens and what it feels like and looks like and ideas about it. Um, and I wanted to expand a little bit on some of the previous uh, points I'd made on that because I've had some experiences that I think uh, are important. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to talk about in relation to it was uh, I had just been in a conversation with uh, somebody and uh, he was asking, how do you repent? And I think he means it more in the sense of a repentance uh, to salvation. Uh, and so I think there are two distinct types of repentance in that regard. And they can be bundled up into one, but I think I'm going to speak of them in that sense, a repentance unto salvation and then a believer's repentance. And I'm going to talk about just repentance issues and, and that in the rest of this uh, broadcast. So let's talk about repentance unto salvation first. Uh, justification is uh, theologically, I guess, the correct term. But um, what I would say is that I've been having a interesting thought about the scriptures about repentance lately and how they are mostly about repentance unto God uh, and faith towards Christ. You know, that, that's how I think it says it in um, repentance unto God and faith towards Christ. I should find that scripture. Another one I do have right here in front of me is Acts uh, 3.19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. See, it's not, it's not as if it's always saying, repent of your sins, repent of your sins. It's saying, repent and turn to God, then your sins may be wiped out. Or like uh, I just mentioned, the the one that says, repentance towards God and faith towards Christ. Christ. And we know that the word repentance means to change your mind. Metanoia, meta, as in metamorphosis, change. Noia in the Greek means mind, change of mind. And I do think it's, um, in some ways, that's simple. That's something you always have to keep in mind when you hear the word repent. It means change your mind, not feel bad, not, uh, you know, weep or, or, or whatever, although it sometimes can accompany uh, that uh, need and feeling and gift of repentance that God gives. But it's also something that we do. We do change our mind. We renew our minds, Romans 12 says. Um, so let's see here. I think there are, I would almost divide the repentance into salvation. I don't mean to overcomplicate this. Because I think sometimes people's repentance towards salvation is as simple as just saying help. It's it's never exactly the same for people because it's never exactly the same thing that's really keeping them from God. Like 
take the rich young ruler, for example. And this is the guy that came to Jesus and said, hey, look, uh, you know, I followed all these things since I was a boy and I've done all these things. What must I do to enter king- the kingdom of heaven? And, and Jesus says, you know, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And he goes away sad and everything. That guy, that guy had an idol in his life that he wanted more than, than Christ or God. He, 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 he had something in his life that was keeping him from that. And, and Christ expects to be number one. And I think some people, that's sort of the issue that they don't want to make Jesus the boss. They don't really want to give up something. And I think for me, I, I, I think I had this to a huge degree. At least it was a, a big factor. I was a severe alcoholic and, uh, and I, I had a lot of intellectual belief in Christ and everything, but I had a big idol in my life, too. And I'm not saying that people can't drink uh, and even be alcoholics and a Christian necessarily. I don't know. I maybe whatever. But the point is, is that I, I definitely had an idol in my life that I consciously almost wouldn't give up because I knew that that's what it meant. I wanted that idol more than anything else. So I think in some senses, the repentance can look like that. But I think... But there's two things that, other than that, uh, repentance towards God is a big one. And I think it may be as simple as that. And I think maybe that's why the Bible basically just says that a lot of times. Repentance towards God. Changing your mind about God. Um, we, as Romans says, are all in rebellion against God. Every single one of us. And, so, and that manifests in different ways. Um, and I think a repentance or changing your mind about God is... Uh, a, a decision that you will follow God and follow Christ, that, that you will be on God's side, that you will actively pursue him. God rewards those, uh, you know, he, he, who faithfully pursue him. He rewards the diligent. So what the, I'm trying to say is that I think in a lot of ways, it's a macro idea of changing your mind about God. I was re- in rebellion against God. Now I am for God and he is my king and I, and I want to pursue God. You might not have the, and I don't think you can really generate love for God. Uh, I think he does that to you and in you um, after that. And especially, as I've mentioned a lot of times, as he shows you how much you, that he loves you and the answering of what you need and different things like that. He shows you that as you progress in that sanctification process or that. Um, but initially, it's a change in your mind about God, being OK with not getting the things that you want in your life or those idols that you have to have, you know, I have to have this kind of house or this kind of job and this kind of wife and this kind of uh, spouse or, or whatever it may be. All these, I've seen this so many times is that everybody has their their thing in their life that that if God doesn't give them that, then there's no deal, God. You want me to worship you? Well, give me this stuff and then I'll worship you. And that is so anti-everything. That is so anti-Jesus. It's so anti, I mean, nobody could read uh, the Gospels and come away thinking that that is anything other than utter blasphemy almost. But it's great that God is good. That's the good news is that though you need to be okay with coming to God and changing your mind about God, and if God wants you to die the next day, then that's okay because God is God and you are not. But the good thing is, is that when you come to God with that in poverty of spirit, then he gives you generally the things that you need or the things that you didn't even know that you wanted. And he demonstrates himself to be not just a God of 
worship me, but a God of abundance and about a God of goodness and a God that is good to serve, a, a wise and righteous king. But you don't really get to demand that of him as a prerequisite to coming to him. And you need to literally be okay with having nothing and having only him. And that's that's a, a big one I think really keeps a lot of people who even think that they're saved from being saved. Uh, I know a lot of people who have many idols or usually though it's one idol. It's one thing that is keeping them from God. It's keeping them from change in their life. It's keeping them from a lot of stuff. And so lay down that and repent towards God. He does not owe you that in your life. You know, it's like he says to the to the guy who says, oh, I've been storing up this stuff in my barn. You know, I think I'm going to just take it easy for the rest of my life. And and uh, he says, you fool, tonight your life will be required of you. Then who will get all the stuff that you stored up? We are as grass of the field. Our very breaths, our, our, our days are numbered. And it could be tomorrow that your life is required of you or tonight that your life is required of you. So anyway, um, the other thing about repentance towards God is rebellion against God. A lot of people have a, a, a knowing hatred. They're looking for ways to, this is a kind of open, more open rebellion. Uh, they're looking for, on the websites, looking for why God is bad and the things that he does you know, wrong and something like that. Anything that they can find to sort of justify a a a growing open rebellion against God. That that's really no different than everybody else. It's just a more sort of heightened version of it. But that person in their repentance towards God, they they usually have a powerful uh turning or changing their mind about God. Because they and I don't expect somebody that that has genuinely heaped up a lot of apologetic stuff or, you know, arguments against God. I, I, I'm sympathetic to them getting to understand that that stuff is a lie. I think it's important. But usually, you know, after you spend a lot of time with those people that are like, you know, I've got this thing. What about this thing? What about this thing? What about this thing? And you, you get done with 20 of those things. They're like, okay, okay, I get it. Okay. But what about this thing? But eventually they're just going to keep finding more things. That That's kind of a different thing. But at some point they have enough information to know that most of the stuff that they've thrown at, at God is not true. And so they have enough to say, I'm going to change my mind about this and my rebellion against God and looking for things uh, uh, to, to fault him with. And I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I'm going to let him be God and let me be his creation and uh, live for his glory. That is uh, repentance towards God. Now, there is another uh, thing that the scripture says, uh, notably twice in the book of Hebrews, is repentance from dead works. And it speaks of repentance from dead works, uh, such as in Hebrews, maybe six, five, six, anyway, um, chapter five or six, I'm not sure exactly where. And then another time later on, um, you can see how good I'm doing with my notes here, but it talks about repentance, uh, from dead works. And it speaks of it as that is the basics of uh, repentance unto salvation and justification. You need to repent of your idea that you can do anything to deserve it. This is a kind of repentance that uh, a person that might not have any of the other problems, uh, and maybe, let's say, a good Catholic or a good, lots of cults, um, or a good person that has been sort of a cultural Southern Christian all their life, and, you know, they say all the right things, but there's nothing in their life that... Uh, could convict them of being a Christian in terms of their heart. Um, but, you know, they go to church every Sunday or whatever. That that person who 
is maybe a repentance of their dead works unto salvation person. What I mean is that a Catholic, ironically, to them, it's not so much a repentance of their sin or they're changing their mind about God. I think you could probably make a case that there's a macro sense in which they change their mind about God. Uh, and I, But I think that for them, that moment of salvation usually comes at the moment that they recognize that to repent from their dead works. Because for them, the problem is a lack of understanding of the gospel. If you think that gospel, if you think that, you know, if you think that justification, you're just your righteousness before God, you did, you know, certain works, uh, you know, baptized when you're an infant, you know, all the things that they call the sacraments that are a part of the accumulation of uh, the spirit and, uh, you know, all this, whatever, however that works. The, the problem then is that, as Paul says in the book of Galatians, that um, if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. So they're saying that righteousness comes by the law, no matter how they try to dress that up. So if right, they'll say, well, yeah, you got to do, well, I don't want to go over to that right now. But yeah, they say righteousness does come by the law. So they don't understand why Christ died, because that would mean that Christ died in vain if that was true. So why did Christ die? And I think that there's a lack of understanding of the gospel. If there's any sense in which you don't understand why Christ died, what exactly were we saved from? Were we saved from our sins? Because our sins weren't after us, you know. We, we were saved not from our sins. We were saved from God. There was a transfer that, made on the that was made on the cross. We gave Christ our sin to be judged with by the holy wrath of God. And he gives us in return his perfect record, his perfect righteousness to be viewed with by God so that God can in, in that dwell us now because he doesn't see us any longer with our ups and downs or sins and whatever. He sees us consistently with Christ's righteousness so that he can give us his spirit and then thereby change us, give us a new nature. Second Corinthians 5.21, if any man is in, uh, is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away, all things become new. You begin to change, you begin to want different things, and that's why you're no longer in need of a, a schoolmaster as the law, because your heart has changed. You want more than uh, than anybody else to to do good. And when you do uh, uh, sin, it, it hurts you, and you are grieved, and it leads you to uh, a more um, serious um, trying to do better. You are your own best critic. The um, thing then about uh, repentance to salvation is a change of mind. And I think that everybody's, I was, I posted a, the, a testimony of Paul Washer recently. And in his testimony, you know, he, as much as he talks about all the different things and whatnot, uh, he's got a really interesting uh, thing out there that sort of deals with a lot of, uh, this is, it's called, um, well, it doesn't really deal with a lot of this stuff, but it's interesting. It's called don't expect a perfect repentance. And he's talking about how a lot of people see these grand salvation experiences and they're like, Oh, I, you know, I'm not really saved because I didn't have that or whatever. It's interesting in his, in his story though, what, what basically is the moment of salvation in a lot of ways for, for him, as best as I can tell from, from his story, of course, uh, is, the moment that they asked him, you know, his friends asked him, well, okay, we're going to go do this party or whatever tonight. And he just, he just, you know, intellectually understood and been completely convicted by God. And it was the moment that he said, no, I'm no longer, I'm not going to go to your party because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ now. And he turns away and walks out. And it's at that moment that 
you know, he becomes a new creation in lots in lots of ways and different things like that. And I, that's just one sort of way. Mine was not like that. I'm sure yours, if you're saved, was different and it dealt with different things. But there's always um, that sense of whatever it is that you're needing to, what is, whatever barrier that has been built up that's keeping you from God, whether it's uh, you're religious, uh, a lot of Muslims or or whatever uh, believe that it's their works that are getting to the heaven, heaven, or whether it's that that huge idol in your life, that uh, thing that you must have, the thing that uh, that you hold way higher than God. You would take if if the question was ever posed to you, would you if you could have either God or that thing, you know, which would it be? And you might grudgingly say, oh God, but you would really mean that thing, or that person, or that idea. Or is it, you know, a, a sin thing, like it might be an addiction or whatever. And I'm not saying that addictions are going to keep you from salvation. Addictions addictions are part of the fruit of salvation, the freedom of addiction. And uh, I think sometimes people that have addictions and things like that, they just need to be, they just need to mentally change their mind about it. It doesn't say change your actions, throw, you know, it, I mean, it is change your actions, don't get me wrong. But a true repentance, a true change of mind will result in a change of actions. And it may, doesn't mean it's going to be a perfect one. For example, if you if you are addicted to heroin or something like that, and in your heart you want heroin, there's 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 two different kind of things. There's like, oh, I don't like what it's doing to me. I don't like all this stuff or whatever. But, um, you know, there's a, a desire for it. And then there's like a, a decision to like, I am done with it. I, I don't want this. I want God, you know. Uh, there's a change of mind there that once you pursue, God knows that you can't do it on your own. But if you do your part, if you change your mind about it and resolve about it and take a step in that direction, even though you can't do it, still take the step and he will honor it. He'll give you power to do it. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. And my salvation, I think, wasn't... I mean, in, in one since I want to say it was directly related to me quitting alcohol... Uh, but I don't think that I just became saved when I quit drinking alcohol. There was another thing that had to happen. I sort of, I know, I think in my heart, in my situation, I needed to quit drinking alcohol before I was truly saved. Uh, maybe, I don't know if I would say like I had to do it, but it's the way it happened. And I quit alcohol for maybe three or so months, or maybe it was a little longer than that, before I had another moment when I really decided, I remember specifically saying, okay, you know, I had this sort of thing, experience or whatever, where I was like, Okay, I got up and I remember saying, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, in this case, I was going to read my Bible, but for, for me, reading my Bible meant a whole lot more at that moment. It meant, I'm going to go follow Christ. And it was me getting up and going and fo- that's going to my room to read my Bible that day that really, if I was going to put my finger on any moment, it was that moment. It was a, it was a repentance towards God in a lot of ways. So I, I, and repentance of salvation, it's, it's big and it's not quite the same for everybody. There's no silver bullet to tell you what it looks like, but I hope by saying it like this, I've given you some better idea of what it what it can be. Okay, so the second part of this is repentance for believers. I've talked about this in recent episodes, um, mentioning how if you stumble in a sin or stump, something like that, you know, as a believer, we all still have those those sort of thorns in our side that we consistently have to deal with and everybody has sort of different ones and they're not always the same and you know whatever it is it's working on you whether it's materialism or whether it's uh you know lust or greed or pride or um 
or chemical stuff, desires for uh, things that used to be addicted to or whatever. Just there's an amazing amount of stuff that we all deal with. And um, if you fall into that, I, I, I said in a recent uh, podcast and was the what a believer does in that regard. The we have, you know, grieved the Holy Spirit, you know, we haven't lost the Holy Spirit, we're still saved, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 and so on. We're, we're not, we, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day, day of redemption, but we can grieve it. And that grievance should um, uh, lead you to, to repent and change your mind about it, to not just sin and, and, and do nothing, but to sin and repent, to change your mind and say, I don't. I'm not going to let this be a habit because sin has this insidious thing is if you, if you let it in and give it an inch, it will take a mile and then it will be so much more difficult to resist it. And it's just, that's how it works. But if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. That should be just something you keep in your mind about these kinds of issues. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, but you got to resist him. And, the resistance there for a believer in repentance is so important, uh, especially in that moment of stumbling. If you stumble, don't let it, don't don't let it keep you from God. Don't let it keep you from prayer. Go immediately to prayer and ask the Lord for conviction. You know, uh, ask Him to help you in that repentance, and not just a pleading for repentance, but try to change your mind about it. Try to say that this is the last time I'm going to do it, and to be serious about that. Go. Get up as the la- that was the last time. That's the end. That was you know we'll look they look back in the history books and they'll say this was the day that that was the last time that that got me. And you need to be serious about that. And I bet for most of you, if you do that with certain things, it will be the last day that that will that will afflict you. For most of you, if you've never done anything like that, you're going to have victory over a lot of stuff. I remember when I first uh, started being sanctified and and all this stuff changing and giving new desires and stuff. I called myself a sin assassin. You know, there was a lot of big sins that I had in my life, uh, after salvation, I was still doing that. I haven't done since. And there's a lot of big things that you probably have. If you're a new believer, whatever that you can leave behind and leave behind for good. Um, but then, you know, as you get down the road, you start to kind of run out of the big things and you start sort of stuck with the, uh, with the things that are more difficult to, uh, to deal with sometimes, and they're more heart level stuff a lot of times. And, and I don't think it diminishes them. They're not smaller. They might even be bigger, but, and, and, and they're more rooted in a lot of other things and stuff like that. So, so anyway, last time I was talking about how there was, I was dealing with some issues, and I just kind of um, remember just saying, that's it. You know, I don't, I'm, I, Lord, I can't be dealing with this right now. I really was so sort of fed up with, having given this particular thing too much room and sort of creeping up on me and stuff like that. And just decided, I don't care how much I want to do this. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not even going to entertain the thoughts anymore. When it comes, I'm just going to completely disregard it. And I was mad about it. And and it was interesting because it just, it almost like went away right then. I was expecting kind of like when I uh, quit drinking alcohol, I was expecting it to just be there forever. Like, okay, I don't care if this, desire is still there for as long as I live. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to entertain it, whatever. And it was almost immediately that I'd done that, then the desires were gone. And, you know, it actually, I did that podcast and it had been maybe three, four weeks. I don't know, maybe a little less than that. 
and I went another week or whatever and sort of entertained the thought again. Maybe a month later, I was like, oh man. And it was, and it was, it was terrible because the, the problem with it was, is that I was so free from it, you know, more free than I had been for a while, but I like almost intentionally engaged though I was free and it kind of like flooded back with the same sort of uh, difficulties and whatever. And I, Try to do the same thing. Okay, we'll just do the th- same thing again. We'll just you know, change our mind and it's going to go away again. And it was not quite as easy as it was that day. And so I, I kind of examined my heart a lot about that and you know, tried to figure out if it was just, was I just trying to keep it around a lot longer? Did I really mean that I really wanted to change my mind? It kind of gave me an opportunity to really define repentance, I guess, in my heart and and... You know, I was trying to do the same thing. Okay, now I'm really, that's really going to, you know, do it and trying to muster up this resolve. And uh, it was difficult. And I kind of came to the conclusion that um, that it still, it still works. Sometimes you have to not be expecting the quick fix, but expecting the consistent uh, daily repentance. Like the alcohol thing with me, I think is a good example. And it reminded me uh, about that is that with alcohol, there was a good three months after I decided I was not going to drink alcohol anymore. Uh, but and before the actual desires went away, that it was a daily battle. I, I still had the resolve not to do it, but it was still a daily, here comes the desires take a deep breath. And I don't know what it is about deep breaths, but it's usually just one and it's all over. You know, here comes the attack, deep breath. And somehow it's all, I forget about it. It's just, you know, a few seconds later, I couldn't care less, but it's a, it was a daily battle of here come the des- desires and here comes my resistance to those desires and I'm not giving in, it's still not giving in. That's the point. It's not just being tossed around by the waves anymore. You're, you've decided not to be tossed around by the waves, but when they, when the desires come, comes the resistance on your part and you still resist the devil and he will flee from you. And depending on what it is or, or whatever the circumstances of your heart or whatnot, you know, it might take some time to really get that full freedom, but freedom will come. Freedom will come. If you do that, God rewards those who diligently seek him. And with that, I will call it, um, call it a show. So if you have any questions, I would normally say to write me, and uh, I encourage you to write me, nowhere to run 1984 at gmail.com. But after this show, I will probably in the next uh, few hours, at least tomorrow, I'll be putting up the autoresponder um, that will be there uh, for about 70 days or so, about a little over two months while I'll be in Africa. Um, so, so I might not get to your email if you email me. And I'm sorry about that. I do enjoy your emails and enjoy uh, talking to you. Remember to keep me in your prayers for Africa and particularly the pastor's conference and that the Lord would uh, be faithful to uh, his word and to to really build them up and to do a great work with uh, the people in Africa. And uh, that's it for me. I will see you guys on the other side. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I have done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.